There are things that we could all save money by not doing as business owners. But the flip side of that is, how do I think strategically about preparing my business or making myself be in a stronger position coming out of all of this when things do start to change back? From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today my colleague Luke Butler and I are chatting with Rohit Bargava. Rohit is an innovation and marketing expert and the founder of The Non-Obvious Company. He spent 15 years as a marketing strategist for Ogilvy and Leo Burnett, is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of six business books, and a professor of marketing and innovation at Georgetown University. In this episode, Rohit will map out ways companies can pivot to make money now, to maintain cash flow during economic turbulence. He'll help you learn to think in non-obvious ways and identify solutions to problems that may seem unsolvable. Plus, he'll share his advice for using any extra time you might have while at home to your advantage so you can come out of the quarantine ahead of the game. Our conversation with Rohit Bhargava is now on Ideas Elevated. Welcome, Rohit. You have spent a good chunk of your career helping people move away from the norm. And in fact, you've encouraged your audience to participate in what you call non-obvious thinking. And my colleagues hear me use that term all the time. Tell us what that means to you. I think it it started kind of with a rebellion against the opposite, which is the obvious. And I think we, we have a lot of obvious in the world. We have a lot of people who say the same thing. I mean, if you've ever gone to one of those those events where you look at a panel of four panelists and they all get asked the same question and they all basically say the same thing, it's like, that's what we're surrounded by. And I hated that. I, I wanted somebody to say something different. And more than that, I wanted to be the sort of person that could find the different stuff that was out there and start to share it with people. And so that's kind of where this whole brand and all of the work that I did, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, given the time that we're in, what are some of the things that you're fascinated with today? What are you keeping an eye on? You know, I, I think that I used to call myself an idea collector because I really find a lot of stories and I, I bring them out and I put them out in a, a weekly email that I that I do, but I also in this trend work that I do. And lately, I think I've become a resilience idea collector. Like, I'm just... I'm savoring those examples of people pivoting, you know, doing interesting things that that they're forced to do now because of how much the world has changed, right? And I I take a lot of uh, hope from those things, but also a lot of inspiration because people are just finding new ways to do things because they have to. Do you have an example of something that you're seeing now that you think, "Oh, that was so that was that used the non-obvious mentality?" There's so many that I come across like every week. I mean, there there was this one. I mean, look how people, musicians for one, right? Like the way that musicians are just going out there and putting together these private shows. And, and look, I'm somebody, I'm one of these people who like, I've loved music for a long, long time, but I hate concerts because the sound isn't great in a concert because it's blasting at you. And 
I end up hearing more people screaming than the actual musician. So I know that makes me sound old and I, and I am old, but it wasn't a great experience for me. Like it's nice to have a crowd, but I'd rather hear the musician. And if I could get this intimate show, like I would take that any day. And now you're getting those. Like I was watching a private show from like the artists from the bare naked ladies and like, you know, all of these artists are doing all of these things, and that's just really cool. So, like, I see disruption there. I see disruption with, like, I wrote about something that was started, like, two years ago that was being called Ghost Restaurants, which were basically restaurants that were uh, just a kitchen, and they would make the food, and they would deliver the food, but they didn't have any restaurant where you could sit down. And that was really cool, and it was starting to take off, and now so many restaurants have to do that, right? So it's like all of these examples of people just doing this crazy stuff like a baseball team filling a stadium with like robot spectators or like, you know, all of these media properties. And I know you guys are doing some of this as well, where you're making all of this content available for people to to see for free because we have time to see this stuff. Yeah, people are really hungry for content and they're hungry for, you know, solutions, right? Everyone's trying to figure out how to deal with this new norm. The other follow-up to that is if, you know, if you're a business that's been around for a long time and maybe been in the industry or think you own the industry and now in this time of of crisis, what is a way of using the non-obvious thought process to get unstuck from fear or panic of what's happening to a business right now? I think the first thing is uh, to separate strategy from revenue. Because I think a lot of times, a lot of companies are asking that as one question, which is what is our strategy right now to make money right now? And the biggest thing that I suggest to many of them is to ask two different questions. The first is, how do we make money right now? Because obviously we need to keep the cash flow going. But one of the least appreciated ways of making money, quote unquote, is saving money. So, you know, you're putting money back in your pocket if you find ways of saving money. And I'm not saying get rid of people as a way of saving money because that's not a good long-term strategy and it, it affects people's lives. But there are things that we could all save money by not doing as business owners. So that's the first piece. But the flip side of that is, how do I think strategically about preparing my business or making myself be in a stronger position coming out of all of this when things do start to change back? And that's what I think the really smart companies are thinking about. And they're not asking it as one big question, which is what do I do now to prepare and make money now? I mean, look, I made money, uh, like I think I told you guys when we were chatting, like I made several hundred dollars last week by selling the old iPhones and, and stuff that I had lying around the house on eBay, right? I mean, I'm making money. That's not what I do for a living, obviously. But if I need money coming in, like I have stuff that I could sell to make money, right? So have a little bit of hustle with that if we need to. What are you going to sell this week? You know, I've got a <laughs> old, it's not even old. It's like literally in the box. Maybe I should do a pitch for it. Somebody will buy it, you know, but I've got like, I think somebody in our house thought it was a good idea to buy one of those Dyson hair dryers, like the really expensive ones. Oh, they're really ones. nice. Oh, yeah. I'll buy yeah. that from you. Well, and it's sitting in a box. It's like totally brand new, right? So like, I'm like, I got to put that out. That's a couple hundred bucks right there, right? 
Not to mention boxes and boxes of books, which I need to like <laughs> unload. So I got to find a strategy for those too. Yeah. Speaking of those books, Rohit, you uh, released a book just a, a short time ago, and I guess as as a predictor of the future. Releasing a book right before a global pandemic hits and nobody can leave the house and come to your events is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. But this book, Megatrends, is really a, a, a compilation of the work that you've been doing over the last decade or so. Can you tell us a little bit about Megatrends and how the book came about and, and how you decided kind of what made it into the book? How did you get to the areas that you focused on in this recent edition? I have to say, I think I feel like my timing was pretty lucky, actually, because the book came out in mid-January. Mm -hmm. And so by the time we had a lot of the effects of the pandemic come, I was pretty much pretty well done with my book launch. I mean, I'd already put it out there. So for me, the bigger challenge was I wrote this book about trends for the future right before this pandemic hit. And so the big question that everyone asked right afterwards is, look, do they, are they still valid? Like, is, did, did everything that you wrote about in this book, is it basically canceled out now because the world has changed? Um, and the good news is that there are, when you write about the future and when you write about these things that are starting to happen, but not necessarily accelerating that fast, the good thing is that in this pandemic, a lot of the things that I wrote about that were starting to take off have taken off much faster because they've had to, right? So, for example, distance learning, which has been around for a long, long time, is now at the front of everyone's mind because all of our kids are home from school. Esports and the idea that you could watch people playing Madden against each other was there for a long time and people would watch it. But now, because we don't have any actual sports to watch, like that's the only thing we could watch. So we're watching NASCAR videos, uh, people racing NASCAR in video games because it feels like we're watching sports and it can be done in isolation, right? So like all of these things that have been around for a long, long time, all these technologies are really starting to accelerate. And I think as somebody who has often gone into companies, and I know a lot of your audience are, they're innovators, right? They're, they're, they're entrepreneurs, and they're used to being the one in the room that is presenting an idea that seems risky for everyone else, right? I mean, that's a very common situation for us together to be in. And I think we're now in a moment where many of those risk-averse companies that could have been just complacent and done what they always did and, and not taken the risk are being forced to start thinking about taking some of those risks, which is... Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Because we're, we're being forced to be innovative because we have to, and therefore maybe some of these things will stick afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've even been talking internally about just some of the ways that our business, which is, you know, a massive corporation with hundreds of thousands of employees, some of the things, the ways in which we've had to quickly uh, change our way of working over the past month or so, and, and things that have been you know, maybe on the drawing board or people have been thinking about for a couple of years and umming and ahhing and, you know, how do we go about implementing this? And then this has kind of forced us to to jump right into it and just to make some of those changes. And I think a lot of a lot of startup companies are doing the same thing. One of the things I, I know that you've kind of talked about in the past is you don't pull these ideas together as kind of trend theater. You don't, it's not just interesting for the sake of it. You want to provide kind of a actionable or kind of a guide for how how people can use these what are some of the ways as you talk to founders or business leaders that you what are some of the ways either they can use the techniques that you use to, to come up with these trends or even take advantage of some of the the trends that you identify in the book 
there's a couple of pieces to it, right? So the first is habits and forming habits for yourself that allow you to be what I call a non-obvious thinker. And one of the biggest habits that I frequently use is diversity of media in my diet. So you wouldn't eat the same thing every day. But when it comes to media, we kind of end up doing that because we click on the same links, we follow the same stories, we go to the same news sources. And so we end up predictably being very narrow-minded because we only see one perspective. And in particular, not just one perspective from a single media entity, but one perspective in terms of a political ideology, right? And the challenge with that is when you are that narrow-minded and you only pay attention to a certain type of media, you're very easy to manipulate. You become an easily manipulated person. And that's not on one side or the other side. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a logical statement, which is, you know, if you don't consume things that challenge your point of view, you become narrow-minded and then anyone can make you angry about anything and it's not under your control. And so the biggest thing that I try and teach people how to do is consume things that they don't agree with. Try and get that perspective from somewhere else so that you can form your own opinion and you can form your own point of view about the world. And that, to me, is what not only allows us to be just smarter, more open-minded people, but it also makes us better entrepreneurs. Because now we see the world the way it actually is instead of the way that someone is trying to paint it for us. One of the things that I think has been been really interesting, and, and it kind of strikes me about some of the trends that you focus on in the book seem to be a reaction against technology or a ways that we can balance or, or protect ourselves against the impact that, that technology has had in our lives. You talk about revivalism and, and people wanting to kind of get back to back to basics a little bit or ways that we can kind of better value our own attention or protect ourselves against the the impact of technology. And it's interesting at this time where I feel like we're experiencing both, you know, never have we been more reliant on technology, you know, where today, you know, we're interacting because of digital platforms. And that's the way that we're all working now. But I also feel like, you know, we're, we're seeing value in spending time with family and reading and, you know, getting out to walk if we can. How do you see this playing out once we get through this immediate crisis? Do you, how do you see that balance between, you know, embracing technology as well as kind of having that, just that center of being close to family? Do you see benefits that will come out of this crisis that will kind of leave us more balanced on the other side? This balance is a good word for it. I think even before this crisis, many of us were struggling to find the right balance. And everything that I write about and all of these trends are based on observation of things that are happening, right? So I'm not really painting a picture of the world as I'd like it to be, even though I wish I could. Instead, I'm reflecting on what I'm seeing in the world already and saying, well, this is taking off, not because I agree with it or I want it to, but it's taking off because it's taking off. Like, here are all the stories, here are all the examples, here are all the, uh, the here's the proof that it's taking off, right? And, and revivalism, which is a trend that you mentioned that was from the book, was all about how people were going back to analog experiences. They were listening to music on vinyl, they were playing board games, they were doing all of these things even before the crisis because they wanted more human connection. And I think that when you observe something like that, it's easy to say, well, technology is a bad guy and we're all trying to escape technology. At the same time, you're right, in a moment like this, technology is what's allowed us to be connected, right? And I think that, is it gonna totally shift after the pandemic? I don't think so. 
because our struggle for this balance is going to continually happen because we have technology available to us. And I think the real danger point of that is that a lot of technology-based experiences like apps can be made to offer us the sorts of things that our brain needs to be become addictive. And when something becomes an addiction, now you're no longer controlling it. It's controlling you. And I think that many of us didn't get to that point, right, uh, because we struggled against it. But there's a danger that we could because the technology has become so smart, right? And as soon as you get facial tracking and mood tracking and you can see what people respond to and you can add all of the analytics that are now available, like as soon as we can do all of that on a brain basis, right? And as soon as we can measure all those things and then deliver something in real time, there's a real danger that we can all become addicted to these experiences without having any control at all on our own. And it's not because we're bad people. It's because our brain chemistry has been so analyzed that we can't help it. And so that's a little bit of what I, I, I am afraid of that could happen. But right now, it just remains too difficult to do that. And I think that the more we're aware of it, the more we can intentionally say, look, I'm going to hit the off switch. You actually came to our office and you did a talk to uh, a lot of people in Comcast about I guess it was about a year ago now. And you ran an exercise that I found really interesting tied to cutting out headlines in newspapers and sort of the process of getting to the non-obvious. And I'm thinking about all these people who are now at home. There's, I know I've got my stack of, new, of magazines that I'm about to go through. If you have an innovative mind, or even if you don't, what is that? Can you just walk people through that process that you use to create your sort of vision for spotting the non-obvious. And part two of my question is, you know, I've, I've been really excited to see all of these families and different companies like pivoting to create masks and, and other things that aren't technology at all, actually. They're hand sewing. And, you know, so how can people think about using this time to really look for those pain points and, and the things that people really need and potentially turn that into a business or, or a nonprofit or something that's doing good? Well, I think the, the first part of that is there's most of us don't think about it this way, but there's really three kinds of media like news media. There's the short take, which is something just happened. It's breaking news. You're watching it on TV or like you get the daily newspaper. Then there's the opposite of that, which is the long take, which is these monthly magazines that are often put together three or four months ahead of time. So like you might have gotten the latest issue of your monthly magazine and didn't even mention anything about the virus because like it was put together before any of this happened. And then there's the medium take, which are like the week, like Newsweek or Time magazine or any of these things that kind of do a little bit of analysis, but not as deep as the monthly take, right? And to me, what's fascinating about magazines are that you can get all of those different takes, magazines and newspapers, but you can also get them from very distinct point of views. So magazines are, are by definition, very, very niche, right? What they do is they look at a category of something based on what they know their audience is interested in. So you'll get magazines on parenting, you'll get magazines on sailing, you'll get magazines on trade, on uh, training, on, on having perfect abs or whatever the thing is, Right. And by picking up a magazine that's not something you are ordinarily interested in, you get this beautiful window into someone else's world, someone who's not like you. 
And in a world where we get so much of what we consume through social media, which is basically filtered by people who are like you, uh, who are think like, think like you, the fact that you can go to a magazine and get an unfiltered, non-algorithmic way of looking at somebody who thinks in a way that's not like you is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so that's kind of what we did in that exercise. And I think that we have that chance now to to take these things. And, and you're right, we probably do have stacks of magazines, most of us, and that we've been getting. And we have a chance to kind of go through those and say, well, what are the commonalities and what are the stories here? And how do I find patterns? And a big part of what we did in that exercise is we focused on patterns. Like, how do we see patterns between something over here, something over there, different versions of the same thing? It's just like a, a fascinating collection of those. The second part of your question, which is like, if you're paying attention to all these stories, how do you become good at spotting opportunities is what I kind of heard from your question and figure out maybe a new business angle for what to do, uh, something to either drive your business or to be helpful. I think that when you start listening for something very specific, for something very intentional, those start to come out. And and what I listen for, me personally, and what I try and teach people to listen for is, what is the human behavior behind the story? So if you're seeing a lot of people, for example, if you're, see, if you're reading a story about how everybody's going to the store and buying toilet paper, right? Like that was a story out there, like in the beginning of this whole thing. Apparently like we should went, have all been in the toilet paper business. Right. Yeah. Like everybody <laughs> went out and bought toilet paper, right? What's the human behavior behind that? Most people, when they were doing that, it was it, they were afraid right? They were panicking. And part of it was when you go to a store, if there's a shelf that's mostly empty, you start thinking, oh man, I better go and get that because everybody else is getting that. So like we must need it. And the fact of the matter is like a toilet paper shelf, because they're huge bulky items, there's not that many of them as there is of like a chicken noodle soup, right? And so that shelf is going to look empty much faster than any other shelf because it's a huge item. And when you're used to going to a store, as we are here in America, where everything's fully stocked, as soon as you walk past a shelf that looks like it's not fully stocked, you start thinking, oh, man, I better, I better get this because it doesn't look like there's that many left. And there's a psychology to that, right? So now when you start thinking about that in terms of human behavior, you realize it's not about the toilet paper for most people. Which was proved because a couple weeks later, you had these stories about people trying to go back to Costco and return the toilet paper that they bought because they realized they didn't need it that much. And Costco said, sorry, we can't take these back, right? Now, you know, that's a full cycle of this whole thing. But that's the sort of thing that I think we can find opportunity in. And so the opportunity there is, okay, if I know that people are feeling afraid or uncertain, what might I create or what could I do? to help them feel a little more secure, right? And and here's a restaurant example, right? Like one of the great articles I read, and this was actually in my weekly newsletter, is this article about how the shortage of toilet paper isn't what you think. People think, oh, we're out of toilet paper because people have been buying so much that like their supply low, but that's not actually the case. That's not actually the problem. The problem is that there's two different ways that toilet paper is made. Not to get too much on a tangent, but like there's commercial toilet paper, which is rolled differently and it's on a bigger roll so it doesn't fit in your house. And then there's toilet paper for your house. And it turns out that the commercial toilet paper, they have tons of because nobody's going to the bathroom at restaurants and and stores. And it's all usually the places. a little uh, thinner too. Yeah, it's, the, it's different. Yeah, but it's still toilet paper, <laughs> it's you know? It's still toilet paper. So right. it's not like, 
you know, so now some smart restaurants are saying, hey, come pick up the takeout and we'll give you toilet paper for free because the toilet paper <laughs> right. we get is there's plenty of, right? And so, like, there's an example, right, of a smart restaurant saying people are panicking about toilet paper. Look, <laughs> we want to give them the food. We'll just give them a roll of toilet paper because, like, we have plenty. So, uh, Rohit, you, you've recently published a piece which is particularly relevant uh, today around the non-obvious guide to remote work and, and virtual meetings. One of the things you've written about is that the virtual meetings tend to suck. It's not, it's not a natural way uh, of working or interacting with people, but but you have some tips on on how people can can adapt and make the best of this situation. So tell us a little bit about the guide and and some of the tips that you offer to people as they adapt to this new way of working. Yeah, I think that we're we're all kind of struggling with that uh, right now, and I realized uh, pretty quickly that there are some of us who are. Uh, fortunately, maybe a little better prepared for it because we've been used to working like this. I mean, me personally, I have my office in my house. I do a lot of virtual meetings and talks already. I'm familiar with the software because of the nature of what I was doing. And as I started talking to friends and colleagues and people who, for whom this was a very new experience, I realized they were struggling, not just with the technology and the basics of like, okay, now I have to go and get a better microphone or like figure out where to put my video camera so I don't look dumb and make my bed behind me, you know, like that kind of stuff, of course. But they're also struggling with like the isolation of, of this and how to be productive and having the kids at home and figuring out a way to, to pay attention and like not get distracted and, and, so I wanted to try and, and put a book together that had the best of the insights that I could share from having done this myself for the last 10 years. But also I went out and I interviewed you know, close to 50 other people who were in a similar situation, who knew how to work like this, who'd been virtual presenters and done virtual keynote presentations, who'd put together presentations and, and kept people engaged, who were used to doing like virtual collaborative workshops with virtual whiteboards and like really, you know, advanced stuff to get their best lessons and tips on how to be effective and productive and not lonely and, you know, all of the things that we now have to do. And so that's what this book really tries to bring together, the best of their insights, the best of my insights, and in a very quick way, in a very quick read, trying to offer that to people for value. And yeah. so that's what we wanted to try and put together. One of the kind of ironic th things that's happened is though we're all separate and, and working remotely, We've been introduced to each other's personal lives and the interests that they have outside of work by virtue of the fact that we're having these meetings in our home and inviting people in. And so there's a, almost a more human element to this that, that gives us insight into what people have going on at home. And we're having many more face-to-face -face meetings as opposed to calls, and that kind of changes the dynamic. So there are things that I think can come of or barriers that get broken down as we've worked this way over the last uh, few weeks that I think hopefully can be, can, can translate into better ways of working when we, when we go back to normal life. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I think that we, we do get to know each other maybe in a little bit of a different way. And also we try and figure out like, well, how much of ourselves do we really want to <laughs> put out there and what's the right way to do that? But the potential upside is, yeah, we all get to know each other a little bit better as a result of this. And that would be a great thing. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, 
head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin, mixing and editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>